if we tested your body for glyphosate and a host of other pesticides, we would find them. Everybody is carrying around a body burden of pesticides and of other synthetic chemicals. No one should have to wear a spacesuit to grow the food that we all eat, right? No one should be exposed to chemicals that harm themselves or their children to grow the food that we all eat. And, you know, that is such a critical part of understanding that vision of organic for all, that it's not just for the eaters at the end of the food chain, that it's for the people who are working in the field and who are facing the greatest risk from the the current pesticide-soaked state of our food system. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Friends of the Earth. I just love the sound of that. And my guest today is one of those friends. I want to welcome a new friend and a friend of the Earth, Dr. Kendra Klein. And she's the deputy director of science for Friends of the Earth. Did are you a doctor? Did I get yeah. that? Wrong? <laughs> I am a doctor. Yes, oh, I great, am. Great, great. I'm not going to have to redo that part. Environmental studies. I just, yes. I just went ahead and promoted you just in case. So yes, thank you. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> and now you're a friend of the Earth, and we're going to get into that as well. So, what's your doctorate in? I went to graduate school at UC Berkeley for environmental science policy and management. That's the department. But I focused on uh, sustainable food systems and in particular on farm to hospital programs and supply chains and all of the great work that's happening in that realm. Ah, well, you probably have heard one of my podcasts I've had with, uh, with the farm to hospital work that's done by UC Davis and Santana Diaz, who was uh, a, a guest uh, just recently. Yes. Yeah, I saw that. I'll have to take a listen after this. Oh, please, please do. It's an important area. And this area that you got into, what caused you to jump into this? I think there are really three things that coalesced to um, inspire the work that I did in graduate school. One is I grew up in rural Wisconsin. And so my childhood landscape is miles and miles of, at the time, mostly corn, now corn and soy. And I have always been interested, as I grew up and thought about, you know, the the good and the change that needs to happen in the world, how do we shift those landscapes to be more diverse and healthier for the land and healthier for the communities? And I have been particularly interested in pesticides since my 20s because my mother was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer when I was two and again when I was 20. And I began learning a lot about pesticides and other synthetic chemicals that are leading to increasing rates of cancer and many other human health concerns. And so those two things combined set me on a path of um, apprenticing on organic farms in California and Hawaii. And some of the farms that I was working on were really ideal in terms of their practices, the ecology of what was happening. 
but the um, economics of what was happening was very challenging. I saw these farmers struggling. And so when I went to graduate school, I was very interested in the question of how can we engage very large buyers like schools and hospitals to support these farmers who are really the future of our food system and make the the economics of that system work better for farmers and, and for others along the supply chain. Well, I'm really glad I asked you the question. That background really intrigues me. And then how you get into an area like this and then uh, follow up on that interest. Uh, I can I can really envision where you're coming from because I grew up on a farm in Illinois. So we're just, uh, what, maybe 300 miles south of where you grew up, I suppose. Yes. And, and you know, I, I think back of this often of what the farms seemed like when I was growing up and there were reasonable sized farms and there was every quarter of a mile or half a mile, there was another farmstead and kept the barns painted and everybody mowed the, the ditches and, you know, tried to keep the place look nice. And they had some animals and they had crops and they rotated them and so forth. And it's just changed so much through that, through that area. It's been hard for people to not be large scale. And, and and I'm sure in your part of Wisconsin too, a lot of the fences are out. The people may no longer have livestock and and wherever they can, they've gone totally to corn and soybeans and almost nothing else. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just hard not to look at that change and feel some regret. I feel like this is not the best. Uh, and so you started zeroing in on this and looking at these areas. And the other thing, Kendra, that I was, I'm sorry to hear of your experience with your, your mother and the cancer, but you know, I've talked to so many people that became active, that became involved because they did have a cancer experience and they were wanting to look at the source of it. And one of the suspicions always come up, I don't know if it's beyond suspicion, is in some cases it's because of chemicals. And and when you start with poisons, it just makes sense that at some point, I mean, if it's not controlled, it's gonna be an issue. Yeah, I think, you know, it really highlights that in pesticides in particular, which is what I have focused a lot of my work on, highlight the interconnectedness of life and ourselves as part of this living planet. And Rachel Carson in the 1960s really raised the alarm on that and helped people understand that what we do to the environment, we do to ourselves. And the pesticides that we are using in agriculture and using increasingly we really haven't that we've done the opposite of learn our lesson. We are using more and more toxic pesticides in the US and globally. And the mechanisms that make many of those pesticides toxic to their target organisms also make them toxic to beneficial organisms, to other wildlife and endangered species, and to ourselves. And there's really a growing body of solid science showing us that indeed pesticides and other synthetic chemicals are causing increasing rates of cancer, of asthma, of birth defects, of reproductive problems, um, people's challenges with fertility that are on the rise, and of course neurodevelopmental harm, 
We have rising rates of ADHD and autism and as we age, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And there is data making those connections with the synthetic chemicals, including the pesticides that we're exposed to. And so there's really a lot at stake. And I think that the more people understand those connections and are motivated to engage and engage as consumers, I think that that's really important. I think like you said, so many people become interested in, in agriculture because of a cancer or a health experience, and many people turn to organic food. And we know that um, organic food can rapidly and dramatically decrease people's exposure to toxic pesticides. And so that's an important piece as consumers to continue driving the growth of that market and also to engage as citizens. And the the more we all can elect the people and push elected people to make the changes that we need. Um, we will hopefully transform those landscapes that we grew up in back towards the diversity and the family scale and, you know, lively rural communities. And I hold hope that it hasn't been so long since, you know, we were in a better place. And so maybe it won't take another lifetime or two to get back. Uh, but those are my optimistic days. You know, you've touched me on another comment of your past and background. And, and I think back of what I read in college and the one that stuck with me was Rachel Carson, um, you know, Silent Spring. And, and I'm kind of have to think a little while of naming any other books, but all those years later, I still think of Silent Spring. And it, it triggered a lot. It triggered environmental movements. Um, and a lot of, a lot of people were motivated by that and other things happened. And one of the things that has happened is organizations would say like yours, I would have to say that there may be other organizations that claim to work environment, but I don't know if any of them have a better name than, than friends of the earth. Uh, tell us, you know, how did Friends of the Earth get formed and, and give us a, a broad picture? I mean, there must be more to explain than being the Friends of the Earth, which I think we can all aspire to. And I, when I hear this, I think that, you know what, the epidemic we have of loneliness in the country that says that we don't have friends. Well, you got a friend, just walk out the door, <laughs> go take care of it. So yes. tell, tell me, how did, how did Friends of the Earth come to be? The organization was founded in 1969 by David Brower. At that point, he was head of the Sierra Club. And the Sierra Club was not willing to take a stand on a particular nuclear power plant that was going to be built. And Brower wanted to fight that and so founded Friends of the Earth in order to do that. And it grew rapidly. We um, now have a... a Friends of the Earth US, which has sister organizations in over 70 countries. And so we are actually the largest grassroots environmental network in the world and are able to um, really learn from each other and amplify each other's work and power because of that network. So as a motivation of saying, look at the, the earth and we're doing lots of damage to the earth and then have a you know, like, like a broad, broad palette that you can you can work on that is is looking at all the things going on on the earth and you can pick areas to get active and involved 
um, I'm, I'm trying to put words in your mouth, I guess, because it's, I mean, I'm just, uh, again, trying to piece that together again, because you can't imagine any, any bigger kind of terrain to take on than the whole surface of the, of, of the earth. So, uh, is how do you identify what it is you work on? There's just so much. Yes, there are no shortage of environmental problems to be working on. And I I sit within our food and agriculture team. And, you know, from where we sit, we are connected with so many of those other problems that other people are working on. Water quality and deforestation, factory farming as a leading driver of climate change, pesticides and toxics, which is what I focus on. Really, it's all so interconnected. And we we know that biodiversity loss and climate change are the twin and intertwined crises that really are um, what we're all facing and what we're all grappling with. And it, I think sometimes it doesn't entirely matter which issue pick or where you start from, it leads to those crises. And so, um, you know, there's so much good work to be done, so much good work happening, and uh, hopefully people have their own sort of motivation related to any given environmental issue. And and if they follow that, they can be a part of the work that needs to be done. So it, it strikes me that you would start with identifying where the problems are that the organization has to be continually looking at how things are really around the world, where damage is taking place, where there are issues to be concerned with. And then uh, what developing information and education and and what communicate with policymakers uh, on changes that need to take place or regulations that should be put into effect. Yes. And I, you know, so many types of work happen at the organization. I am both leading on some of the peer-reviewed science and research projects related to um, our food and farming system, but I also run a market-based campaign. Um, I lead our Be Friendly Retailer Scorecard, and people can Google that and find it. It is rating 25 of the largest U.S. food retailers on how they are doing on pesticides. Are they doing anything to address the pesticides in their supply chains? Um, How are they doing on offering organic and supporting organic farmers? Because we know that organic is the gold standard when it comes to reducing use of toxic pesticides. Um, The public education I do is often around helping people understand the value of organic because I think that um, some people really get it and I think others are not sure. They think that it might be, um, you know, you hear uh, it's it's a niche market or maybe it's greenwashing. And in reality, it's the most robust ecological and health label that we have on food and it's backed by federal law. And so one of the studies we did and did a video of participating families put four families across the country on an organic diet for one week. We tested their urine for pesticides in the week leading up when they were eating all conventional food. And then we tested it during the week that they were eating organic food. And we found that in just that week, 
pesticide levels dropped up to 95%. So that, you know, that was a peer-reviewed research paper. There are dozens, uh, not dozens, I'm sorry, there are a dozen other that back up those findings. But what Friends of the Earth does is then translate that into a story that really can reach people's hearts and minds, um, translate that into policy briefs so we can educate policymakers on it and really do that work of, uh, you can think of it as a three-legged stool. We've got the science, we've got the policy change that needs to happen, and we've got the market players that are very powerful. And, um, you know, how do we advance work that moves all of those different pieces as, as well as we can? So you're identifying these issues, you're explaining the issues, you're you're communicating then, as you said, uh, supporting the market to communicate uh, products that are are produced in in the case of organic, you know, without uh, without these pesticides. And and then at some point, does your organization decide that uh, legislation should be created or promote regulations? Um, and to get involved in that side of it? Yes, we're very active both on state and federal policy. We know that federal policy can move very slow and particularly on pesticides. Uh, we have, I mean, take for example, banning one very highly toxic pesticide, chlorpyrifos. That took three decades and many, many people's involvement. And that's just one of a class of toxic organophosphates. And that's just one class of many classes of toxic pesticides. And so um, state level policy can move faster to protect our health and the environment. Um, and so we do work in that sphere, um, but it is part of why we do the market-based work is because if you can move these really large uh, players in, in the food system that can help pressure policymakers to do what's right. You know, uh, organic is growing and there's uh, understand the motivation for it and you know, understand the program for it, but it's still a very small percentage of all the food that's marketed in the country yet. And so there's this, this big area of people that are producing food that also need to be encouraged to be responsible to where they're using it. And, you know, I could see you coming at it in terms of, well, we just assume you had nothing. But if you can't get along with nothing, you know, try to use the, the maximum restraint and minimal applications and strictly adherence to all the different protections that need to be in, in place. So that's that's kind of a complicated area, doesn't it? I mean, to to get in and promote the right thing, and to also recognize that even though organic is one standard, you know, there's also food that's being produced responsibly from people that are using, you know, no more than they need, and using different combinations or production practices, and those things are to be encouraged, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Yes, a couple of things come to mind. One is that um, we are really holding the vision of organic for all, of working towards a food system where everyone who walks into the grocery store or goes to their farmer's market has access to food that was grown without toxic pesticides and then does not have residues of toxic pesticides. And, uh, you know, while we hold that very big vision, which will take massive policy change. Part of the reason why 
despite organic growing so rapidly in the market, it still is only a small percentage of acreage is because organic farmers are not supported with uh, federal subsidies and other government support in the way that pesticide intensive and conventional agriculture are. And so if we flipped that system, if as a society, we valued the health and ecological and pollinator and soil and uh, water conservation benefits that come along with organic and other ecological farming methods, we could um, very rapidly move towards a food system that was far more, um, that that embodied that. Uh, we're, we're nowhere close to that though, on the federal policy level. And so, yes, we do really need to bring more farmers in. I think that People who are meeting farmers directly at farmers markets um, and building relations of trust can support farmers who may not be certified organic, but are um, doing really progressive um, and ecological farming and have dramatically reduced or eliminated their use of synthetic chemicals. Um, I think that what the data show us is that the majority of farmers in the U.S. are stuck in a very chemical-intensive system. I'm very struck by a survey of Iowa farmers uh, from a number of years ago where 90% of them reported that they felt like they were on a pest management treadmill. And we talk about that pesticide treadmill. And Rachel Carson warned us um, so many decades ago that when you use chemicals ubiquitously like that, nature fights back, in her words, pests and weeds rapidly develop resistance. And many people know this concept from antibiotic-resistant bacteria that are growing as a result of our increased use of antibiotics. And I will say primarily um, one of the biggest threats is the, the ubiquitous and continuous use of antibiotics in animal livestock. Mm -hmm. um, um, so, you know, farmers are, I, I, and I, I'm saying all of this, I think, to get to the point that the data show us that pesticide use is growing. Uh, we're heading in the wrong direction. And to not point fingers at farmers because so many of them are, are stuck in a system um, where they're barely making ends meet, right? There are larger players that are sort of determining the rules of the game. And so, how, what's the off ramp? You know, how do we get more and more farmers to be able to decrease or eliminate the use of those toxic chemicals? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of excitement around the idea of regenerative agriculture. And I think, I think that's really exciting on one hand. And I think it is inspiring many farmers to, um, adopt new practices to protect soil health. And to ideally, hopefully get on that off ramp of decreasing their use of synthetic pesticides and fertilizers. One pitfall that we're seeing um, happen in that in that exciting realm of regenerative agriculture is that pesticide companies have been very quick to capitalize on people's interest in soil health and regenerative agriculture and are now claiming to be leaders in that space. And that is only going to further entrench 
the industrial monoculture pesticide intensive system that we have. Yeah. Boy, there's so much to unpack there. Let me back up one thing, though. You were mentioning about subsidized agriculture, and it's true, but it's, you know, it's primarily, as you point out, it's the main subsidies are going to crops like corn, soybeans, rice, wheat. And, and really, uh, if you're raising, you know, carrots organically or non-organic, you're not getting a, a government check. Uh, it's, you know, it's a different, different kind of practices. So, you know, we got 350 commodities, I think we grow just in California. And of those, there's only four or five of them that are getting direct subsidies. The indirect subsidies, I think, that come into play is that the land-grant universities don't get as much money as they need for things like regenerative agriculture research. And they're more and more dependent on getting research dollars that are working on other chemicals, whether it's fertilizer or pesticides, and yeah, that um, which is a shame. It's that we we need to be supporting that agriculture and also the research that find ways for controlling pests uh, without chemicals. And so it gets very complicated. But I can. Uh, but um, again, we don't want to discourage people from trying to do their share. Of, of, and I think, as you find probably in your organization, most farmers really want to do the right thing. Um, Absolutely. And I think that's why we need to understand what's driving the system. Um, and I think that, you know, not singling out farmers or individual farmers, uh, they're, they're really not the ones driving or creating the rules of the game. And so it takes a lot of inspiration and effort to, um, take your farm and and create changes and take those risks. And so I think lifting up the stories of the groundbreaking and leading farmers who are really making it happen is so important and learning about how they, how they achieved that and, um, you know, sharing farmer to farmer and, and helping that change happen. And, you know, I will always say what we really need is policy change. We really need the type of support that will help farmers on that path so that they are not taking large economic risks to make it happen. It's kind of like the artificial intelligence uh, debates nowadays, too, in that you can get this technology, but are you using it for its best purpose? And, and people worry about that with AI coming down the road, what will be used for its best purpose. And that reminds me, there's been so much process progress made with genetic engineering and CRISPR technology and so forth and to the extent that they can modify the DNA to be able to have crops um, do better in, in drought conditions and and things like that it's like well that's great we can modify the the DNA but when they end up finding that a market is to be able to allow a crop to have poison sprayed directly onto the crops and kill everything, it really gets hard for people to sort through that because on the one hand, farmers are not cultivating, which they've heard was evil because they're turning the soil over, releasing carbon into the atmosphere and said, oh, good news. We don't have to do that as much anymore because we can spray this poison, which in supposedly is, is safe. And they're saying if it's done exactly right. But when you start working in these areas, when is it ever done exactly right? I mean, you know, 
it's yeah. uh, it's it becomes a very very difficult thing to say well we might be able to use this a little bit and it won't be so bad but then how do you control it being overused and all the other different ways that it mounts up and becomes a problem and i know you guys pay attention to glyphosate which is an ingredient in in roundup right Right. So really, when we talk about genetically engineered crops, at this point, we are talking about Roundup-ready crops and other herbicide-resistant crops because 98% of the acreage of genetically engineered crops in the U.S. is herbicide-tolerant. And so all of the lofty goals that we've envisioned for uh, genetic engineering of crops really have not come to fruition the improved nutrient quality, the drought resistance, the those sort of traits that um, are a benefit to society. And one of the reasons is technological, that the the those fitness traits of a plant involve so many genes and genetic pathways and complexity that we, despite decades now of um, increasing understanding, are not able to harness or master um, to our ends. But uh, creating a genetically engineered herbicide tolerant crop is quite straightforward. It, it's a far simpler um, engineering feat. So that is one part is the technology, but, but as you say, it really is about finding a market and Monsanto and other companies were smart in for you know for their own good in creating crops that they then owned the seeds of and they also could use to increase sales of their flagship chemicals like roundup um the use of roundup and glyphosate as the active ingredient has increased so dramatically since the mid-1990s when we first started using roundup ready crops and for years, Monsanto told us the chemical was safe. And what has come to light as part of the Roundup litigation that some people may have been following in the news is all of the internal documents showing that Monsanto knew years and years ago that this was a highly toxic chemical. And more science emerges, uh, you know, it seems like monthly on how problematic this chemical is. And now the really the world is soaked in it. I mean, the amount of Roundup being used around the world and um, primarily in corn, soy, right? These these large commodity crops, the, the growing of which is increasing because of the growing um, factory farms around the world, you know, growing demand for eating meat. And, um, you know, those are, those are all entwined, right? A lot of the corn and soy we grow is for biofuels and for livestock feed, not to actually feed us or to quote unquote feed the world. So we've got this incredibly pesticide intensive system um, driven by genetic engineering driven by the the profit motive of very large corporations and um it has had such dramatic and dire effects on our health and on the land and on the the sort of decimation of the biodiversity across the american heartland just recently there's been another product that's being phased out the camba i think and it and different a little different than the roundup but with dicamba 
uh, when it was sprayed, it it was very, very volatile and moved. And so, you know, even as they might try to just apply it to a certain area, it could blow across the fence and and go on to a neighbor, even one that has organic production and, and end up ruining their whole farming operation sometimes, too. So there's been a lot of that. And then also the technologies have allowed them to coat the seeds. So not only of what's being sprayed, but you're also putting some of this technology and putting some of the pesticides into the seeds themselves, which is another way of planting it into the soil, which is, um, again, it's just a very, very difficult area. Early on when the environmentalists were getting started, most farmers thought, gee, these are these guys are trying to take away our tools, that uh, they're not being practical, they're going too far. But I, I think we've reached another stage now Like you're finding farmers that are saying, you know, help us get off of this addiction that we've got that we can't live without it. Let's let's find another way. So, yeah, they can't, the Dicamba problem is such an illustration of that pesticide treadmill. And I, I will say um, I'll point people to a report called Merchants of Poison that tells that back history of Roundup and of Monsanto knowing and covering up the harm of this chemical while continuing to really um, push it on a global market. Um, so if you Google merchants of poison, that will come up. Um, but, you know, dicamba. So now now companies are creating seeds that are engineered to be tolerant to additional herbicides like dicamba, like 2,4-D. And these are very antiquated hazardous chemicals. We, we know that these are um, very problematic uh, 2,4-D, for example, is a component of Agent Orange, the defoliant used during the Vietnam War associated with cancer and other health harms. Um, so this is the direction we're heading in now is uh, seeds that are engineered to be tolerant to multiple toxic herbicides. And that's part of the treadmill because the ubiquitous use of Roundup across millions of acres has led to weeds that Roundup can no longer kill. So rather than Getting out, you know, getting on that offering, getting out of the system, these companies um, are, again, taking care of their own interests and uh, using that crisis to sell a new product and sell an even more, even more toxic product. And the Dicamba case also highlights the, um, the fact that Monsanto knew that this was going to be problematic, that the Dicamba was going to be very volatile and drift and um, harm, you know, neighboring land and crops and yet went ahead with it. And we do see this time and again that um, industry is ahead of policy, that our our policy system and our agencies like um, the EPA are more geared towards getting products out on the market um, than acting, um, you know, taking precaution and yeah. ensuring that we know that something is safe before we're using it. You know, one good thing we could say about Monsanto is that they were smart enough to sell to Bayer and they got a lot of money and got out of it. And um, so whoever had was invested for all the other bad things you can say, well, they they got out of the business. And uh, ironically, they get Bear back in it. And Bear's own history goes back to producing weapons for wars for, you know, even back to the turn of the previous turn of the century, back even before World War I with nerve gas and so forth. And so many 
of these um, technologies, of, of these chemistries, were based on something that would kill people. <laughs> and and when they stopped killing people with them, some of these products, they'd say, well, it'll also kill kill weeds or kill insects. And they let's kill stuff. So I, I don't know how you can put things out into the atmosphere and not have it very controlled and have its uh, origin was that it killed things and keep it under control. It seems like it's a it's a pretty difficult job. Yes, the the we talk about post World War II as really a petrochemical boom because the war drove a lot of research into you know what can we do with um, what can we do chemically? How can we manipulate um, uh, the the stuff of life? And it has resulted in a in a farming system that is dependent on synthetic fertilizers and um, synthetic toxic pesticides. And exactly like you said, these are poisons. These are sides, pesticide, right? Um, and so we should not be surprised that they have such devastating impacts on biodiversity and our health. And, you know, this where I, when I think back, World War II, it was a long time ago, but not that long ago. And so when I do try to be hopeful, you know, I think then, you know, in five or six decades, could we be in a completely different place? Are we increasingly in such a crisis moment of the state of the current industrial farming system that we will develop the, um, the policies and the, practices to really get us out of this mess well there's so many areas to get in, engaged in and now i want to i want to start wrapping up a little bit uh, but but i uh, i want to come back and look at the disease connections and to what extent you're following that so if you look at areas that that you, we have personal experiences unfortunately about the cancers but does your organization also look at areas where there is, a, you know, use uh, that seems to be tied back to agriculture chemicals so that you're you're looking at at uh, areas that seem to have more of one type of cancer than another and connecting the dots and seeing how it relates to a certain sort of practice of pesticides or herbicides and, uh, that are used? Yes, I would point people to the website organicforall.org to learn more about connections between pesticides and health harms. Um, that's where we share the results of that peer-reviewed study on the organic diet intervention. We the the science that that shows, well, let me step back for a moment. People assume, I think, that because we can, for example, send a person into space and land on the moon, that we can easily determine uh, whether or not a chemical is safe or whether or not a, a given chemical exposure causes a certain health outcome. But biology and ecology are far more complicated than astrophysics. And so it can be very difficult to have a causal say, yes, this chemical causes this disease. 
part of how we build that case is we look at populations that are very highly exposed, and that's farm workers and rural communities when it comes to pesticides. They are on the front lines of exposure, and we know that they are suffering far greater health harms as a result. The Chamacos study, which is uh, has been undertaken for a couple decades in California, is really one of the leading uh, epidemiological studies that is making those connections. It took, um, it enrolled um, hundreds of pregnant women, tested their bodies for pesticides. You know, what were those uh, fetuses being exposed to? And then has tracked those children. And they in particular have looked at a class of pesticides called organophosphates, which, as you were referring to, has its roots in warfare, uh, sarin gas, for example, is an organophosphate. And we see very clearly that organophosphates are extremely um, toxic to children's developing brains. They, you know, early and and even infinitesimally small exposures can lead to a lifetime impact for children. And we are using these chemicals routinely in our food system and children, you know, for the many, many, many children who don't have access to organic food are routinely eating uh, residues of organophosphates and other pesticides. And some data has shown that um, the levels that show up in an average daily diet can result in um, risk to children's developing brains. So there's many, many problems there. Yes, and I think that, you know, when I talk to college classes, making this connection with farm worker health is, I find, what inspires them most about understanding organic, growing and organic food as a human right and as a social justice imperative. Because no one should have to wear a spacesuit to grow the food that we all eat, right? No one should be exposed to chemicals that harm themselves or their children to grow the food that we all eat. And, you know, that is such a critical part of under understanding that vision of organic for all, that it's not just for the eaters at the end of the food chain, that it's for the, the people who are working in the fields um, and who are facing the greatest risk from the, the current uh, pesticide-soaked state of our food system. Oh, I want to wrap up, but I think I almost have to go back and touch on the, the glyphosate issue again, because there's been so much attention to the fact that it's everywhere. Like you said, if you look at the row crops back in, mostly a lot of it is in the Midwest, but the corn, soybeans, and so forth were nearly 98% or some incredible percentage um, are Roundup Ready crops and then uh, the other treatments that are happening to them right now. So as a result, there's been a lot of publicity to the fact that glyphosate is everywhere. And as I understand it, you can find it in really in all of us. You know, it's just it, yes. it's ubiquitous now. Um, yes. What can we expect from this? I mean, how uh, it's almost irreversible that that's into our systems as much as it as it is right now. Uh, uh, you know, how, how do, I don't know how to ask how you. Do, how do we fix this? Oh, well, I, I'll tell you for anyone listening, if we tested your body for glyphosate and a host of other pesticides, we, we would find them 
right? We're not necessarily going to find glyphosate in everybody, but um, everybody is carrying around a body burden of pesticides and of other synthetic chemicals. Um, that's that is the state of the world right now. And how do we how do we fix it? Um, you know, some of them are very rapidly excreted. Some of them are not, but glyphosate is is one that if you stop being exposed. And if you stop eating food with glyphosate residues, it's quickly excreted from the body. That's hopeful. Um, you know, that, that means that, for example, for people who are able to access organic food, they can reduce their body burden. Um, but, you know, this is part of such a larger system. And I will keep coming back to the fact that um, policymakers set the rules of the game. Yeah. And the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, is charged with protecting the health of the environment and the public. And they are absolutely failing on that job. They are, you know, there's articles and books and and great um, data showing us that the EPA, in fact, is acting to protect the profits of the pesticide industry. And I think people don't, we really now are so skeptical of fossil fuel companies, just as a general public. I think people, you know, understand that uh, we should be skeptical of what they're saying and um, that they are driving climate change. But people don't know that pesticide companies are in some ways more powerful in terms of um, their regulatory power, their power over the EPA, um, and equally, um, uh, e equally vicious in you know their willingness to lie to the public and cover up the harm of their products. And so the this idea that we need pesticides to feed the world as the population grows, people still hold on to as if that might be accurate. And that really is a um, one of the lies of the pesticide industry, that we know that um, the, the scientific and expert consensus shows that in fact, if we want to continue feeding all people now and into the future, we need to stop sawing off the branch we're sitting on. We need to protect the water resources, the pollinators and other beneficial insects, the soil and the stable climate that we need to grow food. Um, and so maybe that's a place to wrap up, right? That, that we need, um, we, we know what we need, right? The expert consensus around the globe is telling us the path forward is biodiverse and um, low input agriculture. And we need the political will in order to get there. And the cost of not doing something could be like people are pointing right now to the fact that life expectancies are declining for the first time. And the life expectancy in the United States has slipped backwards compared to quite a few countries are ahead of them. And then even in states and counties that we end up having parts of of America, I know, that you can look at the life expectancy in some by zip codes. Does this trouble you that this might actually be contributing to this life expectancy? Yes, and there's so many factors at play. The communities that are suffering the greatest um, impacts from pesticide exposure are also suffering 
um, from exposure to um, polluting industries, perhaps to factory farm and all, you know, all of the noxious gases and water pollution that come with that Um, to the daily stress of poverty and to not being able to access healthy food, right? There are so many ways in which um, these environmental justice burdens fall on the same communities. And I think that that is um, what we're seeing when we see that wealthy, well-off communities have higher life expectancies than, um, like you said, you know, than than poor and um, predominantly people of color communities. So give me something to be optimistic about, Kendra. Um, there's, uh, I'm, I'm afraid people staying with us, I think we've covered a lot of, lot of territory. Um, you know, looking down the road, what gives you the most hope that we're going to turn the corner and that it's going to get better? I find great hope in the fact that organic food and farming even exist. People, I think, don't understand many people don't understand the history that this is such a massive social movement win that this emerged from people who um, really were willing to take risks and make the connections between soil and land and our health and um, learn from indigenous farming practices and farming practices around the world and develop uh, this organic food system that we now have, and that they fought so hard to get a federal organic rule that reflected the the true ecological farming practices that they were doing. Um, it was at the time when the USDA tried to water down the rule in the process of making it, they received the most public comments that they had ever received. Um, this is how invested and powerful the organic community was in a- achieving that federal role. So I I take hope there. Um, and the fact that organic, um, the organic market continues to go grow, more and more people are making that connection between food and health and understanding. And, you know, I hope that more and more people, as they learn about and care about climate change, um, understand that organic farming is also a solution for climate change, that what science shows is it can sequester more carbon in the soil, which is a climate mitigation tool. And it also increases farmers' resilience to droughts and floods that we are seeing more of during climate change. Um, so that just the fact that it's there, that we have a solution, that it's a solution that is growing and that we can get behind gives me a great deal of hope. Well, and I suppose that there are people listening to this that are going to want to become a friend of the earth. So how do they know more about Friends of the Earth and how they can connect with the work that you're doing? We have a very simple website. It's just www.foe.org. So if they go to... It's funny because we're Friends of the Earth, but our website is foe.org. So um, if you go to foe.org, you can find out more about our food and agriculture work, but also about so much of the other work that we do and can sign up to get um, action alerts and ways to engage. Um, Yeah, it's a ton of information there. I tell you, it's another way to look at the earth. I can be its friend. And uh, thank you for being a friend. And thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 